Okay, we are in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start reading from verse 8. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of the division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit yet, while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their Lord, back to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said, said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Okay, so last week we talked about Zacharias. Zacharias was a common priest. There were 24 divisions, as it talks about in First Chronicles, 24 divisions of the priests to do a two-week yearly service in the temple they had to do. And it was chosen by lot what each individual would do. And they would do that service for their entire lives, for the entire priesthood between the ages of 30 and 50. And so he was of the, the division of Abiha. And so there was the high priest. Then there were chief priests over the 24 divisions and then under them were common priests. And Zechariah was just a common priest doing his service of just bringing incense from the outside into the inside. He'd bring a hot coal and then he'd drop some incense on there. Very simple job. And, and an angel appears to him. Now there are many writings of, of the Jews. And one of the writings is after, after uh, you know, the, the two sons of Aaron had offered up strange fire. It talks about in the writings of Moses, and they were both killed uh, 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 there before the Lord, offering up strange fire. And so when he was doing this, there was written that if you were to ever see an angel on the right-hand side, that you were going to get killed. And so he was really troubled when this angel appears to him. So it, it says in verse 12, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. So this this embellishment is not in Scripture of an angel appearing on the right and you, and you have something to fear about being killed, but certainly that is in the Jewish writings, not in the scriptural text. It says in verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And then in verse 18, if we skip down, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know for certain, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years? So in other words, by this time, he's quite old. And the angel said, your wife is going to have a son. 
In fact, not just that he's going to have a son, but your petition has been heard. And so it was probably some long time ago that Zacharias was appealing to God on behalf of his wife having a child. But they hadn't had a child. And it's it's as if his prayer died out. Because he says, how can this be? She's old now. It's too late. But God remembers the prayer that this man was praying many years before. 30 years before. 25 years before God remembers the prayer. And so often we will pray for things and many times we might forget even what we've prayed for. But God doesn't forget. His timing may not be our timing. It could be a different sort of timing. God doesn't forget what went on. So these things are, are different in this way. And, and he says, God has heard your prayer. He says, Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. In verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So, so you see that it starts describing something about John. John was going to be different. There is something different about John. It says, Jesus even spoke of John the Baptist. He says, no, no greater man has ever been born of woman than John the Baptist. Jesus said this. But he also said, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist, he says that he's the greatest man who's ever been born but whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So this is amazing that what we are in the flesh is nothing compared to what we are in the spirit. Sometimes people will walk up to me and Christians will be so amazed. Oh, you're Jewish? Oh, you know, this is, touch you. This is as if there's something here from the Jewishness that has nothing. What we are in the spirit, what we are in the spirit is so much more than what anyone could ever be in the flesh. The greatest man who was ever born of woman was John the Baptist, Jesus said. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The kingdom of heaven position is greater than all of these other things. Greater than anything that there is in the flesh. The kingdom of heaven position. But he says that that he is going to be special. This is a special birth. He says he's going to drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. There were, this is a Nazarite, a Nazarite vow in the scriptures, common vow. It was generally taken by an individual for a specific instance. Paul took a Nazarite vow and that's why usually when you took this vow, you vowed not to drink and you vowed not to cut your hair and you would dedicate a certain time period of your life. And that's why the scriptures say, and Paul went and had his hair, hair cut in crinch. So, why did he have his hair cut? Why is the scripture mentioning this? Because he had taken a vow, and then it says, then he went to Jerusalem, and he offered up the offerings for his vow. That wasn't offerings, a, a sin offering. That's not what Paul was offering up in the temple when they finally took him and took him into custody. He was offering up the vows for the typical Nazarite vow that was to be given, where you give up an offering to say, okay, I've taken this vow, and I'm going to fulfill it, and then at the end of it, I'll, I'll give an offering. But there were three men in the Bible that were, net, had, had, were sworn to Nazarite vows, even from birth. So, in other words, 
they, they took this from the birth. One of them was Samson, and, that, and, and God spoke that this was going to occur, and Samson grew up under a Nazarite vow. He never cut his hair. So it wasn't just for a particular period, as was common. It was from his birth. But, but, but Samson broke his vow. His hair was cut. And, uh, um, but then there was another one, and the other one was Samuel, who actually overlapped. They were contemporaries. He, he came slightly after, after Samson, but their lives overlapped. So Samuel uh, was another one from birth, had the Nazarite vow. He did not drink liquor, did not cut his hair. And the third one is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the third person in history that we have recorded in the Bible that had a Nazarite vow from birth. Uh, Samuel kept the vow, as will John keep the vow. But this was a dedicated person. His life was going to be dedicated to the service of God. Now, having a Nazarite vow didn't keep you from getting married. Uh, uh, Samuel, we know, was married. Uh, Samson was married. John the Baptist, we don't see getting married. But it didn't restrict one from marriage to to have a Nazarite vow. Um, And it says, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. That's, again, something that's unusual. Nobody today is born a Christian. You are coming into Christ is something that happens after birth. After birth, there's the decision that is made to follow Jesus. So people say, oh, were you born a Christian? Well, what they mean is, were you born into a Christian family? So I don't make a big theological deal out of it when people say, were you born a Christian? I don't say, well, nobody is born a Christian. You can say that. That's okay. But nobody is born a Christian. It is something that, that, that we come into afterward. If you were born in a garage, it does not make you a car. If you're born in a Christian home, it doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. It's something you come into afterward. But with John, it was different. He was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. This man was indeed different. But when God does something different like this, he tells us. He tells us. He informs us when he does something that's going to be really quite unusual here. And, and it says in verse, in verse 16, He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So this is going to be his mission. He's going to turn people back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So you see, it doesn't say he was Elijah. It says that he's going to go in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So he in fact quotes a scripture here. The angel, Gabriel, who's delivering this message, quotes scripture from the last part of Malachi. Malachi was written, and and, and, uh, uh, this is the last revelation we have in the Old Testament. It's our last book, and it's the last few verses of the last last chapter of Malachi. And then there was a gap of 400 years where God spoke no prophecies to Israel. And now all of a sudden, God is speaking again. And, and so, he quotes from this as to something that's going to happen with Elijah in the end. But he says, it says that John is going to come in the spirit and power. It says he's, in verse 16, he's going to turn many of Israel back to the Lord. And you see what happens is John has a baptism. This baptism is to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And you will see that everybody that got baptized by the baptism of John, the commitment was, 
He who John points out as the Messiah, you will believe that that is the Messiah. I submit myself to this baptism of John. So when John points out that's the Messiah, I will believe it. And people who got baptized by John, when John pointed them out, they believed. People who didn't get baptized by John didn't necessarily believe when John pointed them out. This, he went as a forerunner preparing. Everybody has a different place, a different walk in life. Everybody has something different where God seems to anoint and use them. John's ministry was very different than Jesus' ministry. John was preparing people. Some people have a gift of evangelism. They're very good at it. Lots of people get saved just by they meet people, they talk to them, they get saved. Other people have gifts in drawing Christians back to the Lord, getting them stirred up for the Lord. People have different places, different tasks that God has for them. And then it says in, in verse 18, Zacharias then says to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. So in other words, yeah, I prayed a prayer, but that was a long time ago. Now it's too late. God can't work. In other words, my wife is past childbearing years. So God can't do anything now, right? Well, God is God. He can do whatever He wants. And so, um, in verse 19, it says, The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. So, Zacharias is a priest. Zacharias is supposed to receive things that are coming from an angel that speaks to him in this outer court. Not in the Holy of Holies, but just... The, the level before that, he's supposed to believe this. So to whom much is given, much is expected. This man is supposed to take hold of this. Can you imagine, here is Gabriel. He comes and just appears there. And he's got, you know, bright and shining. And he's speaking to him. And, and uh, Zachariah says, well, all right, but, but how do I know for sure this is going to work? And look at the response. I'm Gabriel. I mean, nobody's ever spoken like this to him before. <laughs> I mean, do you realize who you're talking to? And now here, Gabriel has to go through what God goes through all the time. You know, where, where, where there's this speaking and people just refuse to believe it. It's never happened to Gabriel before. Gabriel has spoken many times in the Old Testament and people receive these things. And so Gabriel is, 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 seems like he's a bit taken aback. He says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Do you realize who you're talking to? He says, just for that, you're not going to be able to speak until this child is born. You want a sign? Here's your sign. Try speaking now. You're not going to be able to speak. He may well have also been made deaf after this too, because later on it says the people had to motion to him, what is your son's name going to be? If, he had, if his ears still worked, they could have just spoken to him. But he clearly was, was mute. He couldn't speak. And, and he, he got his sign all right. Um, and in verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. So they were waiting because it's very simple. It's a very simple task. You take a hot coal from the outside, you go in, you place it, you drop some incense on it, and you're done. Your task is done. There was a whole division. Each person had a dis different task. But this guy's just in there for a long time. 
But when he came out, he was unable to speak, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home, and after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So in that day, for a woman not to have children was a real disgrace. And now in this old age, she was going to have a a child. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months. Now we hear the birth of Jesus is foretold by the same angel. But what we see in Luke is now Luke is going to give us Mary's perspective on what happened. What we get in Matthew, remember what we're going to be doing as we go through Luke's gospel, it's the only chronological gospel. And then we're going to take and we're going to look at the other Gospels and fill in the different pieces. But Luke gives us Mary's perspective. Very little about Joseph's perspective. He's going to give us now Mary's perspective. We'll look in Matthew and get Joseph's perspective on the situation. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month. Alright, so this is the sixth month since um, the sixth month so, so since Elizabeth has conceived. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Okay, so the same angel then, six months later, appears to this woman. It says she she was living in Nazareth. So she was from this town of Nazareth, which was really like a slum area, a very poor area. And it's, uh, I don't know exactly how many miles, maybe 50 miles north of, of Jerusalem. And, and uh, uh, so this, it says that she was a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. And so that word engaged means betrothed. Betrothed is something deeper than our sense of engagement. You know, these days the person's engaged to this person and then they're not engaged. And then they're engaged to another person. There it was really quite firm. And so it was something that was arranged with, with family and, and uh, uh, it was really, really a, a commitment. And the betrothal period was usually less than a year. A year or less was the betrothal period. The girl in Israel at this time was generally about 14 years old. The guy was about 16 years old. So it's interesting that the, the men married much younger than they generally do today. And so, you, you know, even if you think about that, some of the struggles that, that, that uh, young men have today, they didn't have at that time in that they got married at 16. And the women were getting married at 14, roughly. And, and uh, she was betrothed meaning that it was already arranged who she was going to marry. And then he comes to her, and he greets her, and she's perplexed at this, and who wouldn't be? 
Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High God, and God will be with him. And the, and, and God will be with him in the throne, and he will sit on the throne of his father David. Now, to sit on the throne in Israel had to have two different things, depending on whether you were talking about the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom. For the northern kingdom, that came by divine appointment. It wasn't passed down linearly through a particular family. It came by divine appointment. Uh, And if anyone took the throne without the divine appointment, they were assassinated. So, for example, Jehu was given for a certain number of generations, I think four generations, his people would sit on the northern kingdom's throne. When the fifth generation of his family tried to sit on that throne, he was immediately assassinated. For the southern kingdom, for Judah, uh, there were two things that were involved. It was by divine appointment and had to be of the lineage of David. Both of those. And so, in fact, in in the book of Isaiah, there's a group that tries to take the throne in Judah, and Isaiah says, you're not going to be successful. You're not of the family of David. You just better not even try it. You're going to die. It's not going to happen. You had to have two different things. You had to be of the lineage of David, but that was insufficient. You also had to be uh, not of the lineage of Jeconiah, which was one of the offspring lines, because God had cut that off, but you also had to be by divine appointment. But we'll talk more about that when we look in the genealogy. But what's fascinating is Mary's response. Mary's response to all of this is, when she's told that she's going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, her response is, How can this be, since I am a virgin? Now, she wasn't struck mute or anything, and part of this may be because she wasn't a priest. I mean, she was a 14-year-old girl. So, the things that are expected of us, as we learn more about God, the expectations rise. But it's also an interesting comment. How can this be, since I am a virgin? So, So, take a couple who's engaged and is going to get married in six months. Right? So say there's a couple and they're engaged and they're getting married in six months. And I walk up to the young lady in that couple and I say, oh, you are going to have a son. Would her response be, oh, how can that be? I'm a virgin. No, that'd be a silly response. The implication is, you're getting married in a few months and you're going to have a son. You, you see what I mean? This is, this is an odd response. If you look at it by face value, I know we've been hearing this since we were four years old in churches and things, but this is a strange response. Because she was betrothed. It was clear that she was going to get married within a matter of months. So for, to somebody walk up and say, you're going to have a son. All right, well, the understanding is that I'm getting married soon, so I'm going to have a son. Okay, that's great. Praise God. I mean, but she's like, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. Well, obviously, you're going to get married in a few months. No, but how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. Now, I'm going to share with you something, and I'm going to let you think about it. I'm not saying this is accurate. I'm saying that I want you to learn to think about things. Think about things differently. There were sects in Israel of very devoted people that did not that people would get married, so a couple would get married, but they would not have sex. 
They were married, but without, they would not have sex. And you say, well, how can such a sect continue because they don't have children? It's people come into those sects. And you say, this is very strange. I've never heard of it. Well, good. There's many things many of us have never heard of. So you're learning something new. There are people today that still do that at times. It is unusual. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. It's unusual. But there is a missionary couple that, that I'm familiar with. This missionary couple has been married for 30 years. They have never had sex. They devoted their lives to service on the mission field. Generally, when you meet couples like this, they are extremely devoted to the Lord. It is unusual, okay? So I'm telling you, this is unusual. It's not common. In this day and age, in the first century, it was not that unusual. There were groups, there were sects that did this. That man and woman would get married and they would not have sex. For the whole lot, they would not. Now let's look at a few scriptures and... and and some people say, well, Catholics teach that, that Joseph never had sex with Mary even after Mary gave birth to Jesus. Yes, they do teach that. Well, did that come out of nowhere? Probably not. So let's look at the scriptures and we'll, we'll, we'll just dig at a few things and see what we find. So, for example, people will often say, well, look at Matthew. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 verse, verse uh, 24 says, and Jesus awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. And, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So one may say the implication is, here is she remained a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. Then after that, she and, and Joseph had sex and they were they were typical married couple. Maybe, maybe not. Because that word until, or that she gave birth to a son, uh, a virgin, until she gave birth to a son and called him his name Jesus. That can also be used not just until this moment, but onward. So for example, in, in 2 Samuel it says McCall, McCall who was, who was, uh, we, we, we can look at this. This is in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. McCall was David's first wife. And she opposed David's getting excited about the Lord. And the Lord struck her. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23, McCall, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. She had no children to the day of her death. So in other words, on the day of her death, she had twins. Probably not. So let's look in Matthew, because Matthew was the one who wrote this in Matthew. So let's look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. So again, I'm not saying that this is right. I'm saying that you're smart people. I want to give you something to ponder. That's okay, right? Or Think about this. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. Now that's an interesting verse, but let's just look at from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. So in other words, the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence until right now. Ooh, now it no longer suffers violence. No, the implication in that statement is the kingdom of heaven suffers violence from the days of John the Baptist 
until now, and it's continuing to suffer violence. Didn't stop at that moment. Let's look at, at Matthew, same chapter, chapter 11, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. So in other words, if Sodom had seen the miracles that Jesus is doing, they would have repented and it would have remained to this day. But after this day, Sodom would have been destroyed. You see what I mean? The implication is, to this day, the implication it doesn't just mean that it stops at this day, but that it continues on. This is one way of reading it. Now let's see, well, why would I say such a thing? You say, well, Jesus had brothers and sisters. He did. The Bible talks about it. But if you go to the Middle East, even today, Cousins are called brothers and sisters, and you live with them as if they're your brothers and sisters. And when I talk to my own wife about this, she says this is absolutely the case in her country. You have people saying, this is my brother, this is my sister, and they're all cousins. And you don't know which ones are the real biological brothers and sisters and which ones are the cousins, because they all live so close together. Look in, in 1, Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a really interesting passage. Now let me... Let me tell you that, that for those of you who use the New International Version, that's fine. That's a great version of the Bible. The problem with the New International Version, it's thought for thought. It's not trying to translate the exact words. Whereas something like the New American Standard, if it adds a word, it puts the word in italics to tell you it's not really there. We put it there to try to make sense out of this passage. You see what I mean? So when it puts in a word that's not really there in the text, it puts it in, in italics. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's talking about marriage and, and uh, virginity. It says, but I want you to be free in verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. This is really interesting. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how we may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. Now it talks about woman. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Okay, so there seems to be three groups here. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin. Now, you can have an unmarried woman who's not a virgin. Right? Happens all the time. The woman who is unmarried, the implication is she's unmarried and the virgin. Could it be that the virgin is part of this sect group that is one of these women who gets married and, and, and the man and the woman never, never have sex, but they are married? Because it says the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So now we have a, a, a person who's married. <clears throat> this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to produce, but to promote what is appropriate and secure, undistracted devotion to the Lord. Verse 36. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. 
Okay, so that's what it says in the New American Standard, but it has several italicized things in there. It's stuck in the word daughter. It says, but if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, but daughter is in italics, which means it's not there. If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, is really what it says. But the transcribers stuck in the word daughter. Now let me tell you something. If a man is looking unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter in that way, that's a much different problem. The problem of incest. Men who have that problem have a very different problem than what the, Paul is talking about here. Men don't generally look this way upon their own daughters. I have two daughters. It, 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 I just shudder at the thought of even thinking about that, that way with my daughters. They don't do that. So to stick in the word daughters to try to make this sound okay puts it, what are you talking about? Is Paul talking about men who are looking unbecomingly toward their virgin daughters? All right, remember, the word daughter is not there. But if any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. The Bible here says, let her marry, but it says her should be them. Let them marry. You know, when you stick in a word on something, it's going to mess you up. This happens in science all the time. You want to try to figure something out. If you stick in a piece of data that's not there, I'm telling you it's going to upset all things that come out on the other side. When you stick in the word daughter, you have to say, let them marry. But then you say, well, really, it's not them, it's her. uh, Not her marry. It's really them. So, in other words, if a man and a woman are married, just think about this. If a man and a woman are married, but they have set themselves aside to be virgin, she's going to remain a virgin. But he's looking unbecomingly. He just can't take it anymore. He says, it's okay. You have not sinned. Let them marry. Let the two of them marry. Let them marry. So, in other words, there were sex like this. I know it's, in, in our sexual minds, it's hard to fathom how this can be. But remember, these were different kind of people. There were sex that lived that way. He says, but if any man, in verse 36, thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, if she is past her youth, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided that this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin, he will do well. Now, the Bible here says to keep his own virgin daughter, but again, daughter is in italics. There's no context for daughter here. To keep his own virgin. You want to keep her virgin? You're going to do better because you're going to be more devoted to the Lord. And I'm not promoting this. Not promoting it at all. I'm just giving you food to think about. Right? You like to learn, right? We like to learn. What can we study here in the Word of God? What does it say? So maybe she was of this sect. And then you go on in verse 38. So then both he who gives his own virgin in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Again, I extracted the word daughter because that's in italics. So once you stick in that word daughter, then you've got this this, uh, uh, incestual relationship going on. You've got to pull daughter out or you're going to have to deal with incest in here. Now you say, well, where else does, does something like this come strangely? If you look in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19. So Jesus is here on the cross and he looks down from the cross, 
just before he's about to die, John chapter 19, and it says in verse 25, Therefore the soldiers did these things. John 19.25 But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the code word for John who wrote this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own, own household. He took her into his own. So if, if Jesus did have a bunch of physical brothers, why was he committing Mary to the care of John? You say, well, his brothers weren't believers. They weren't. But Jesus knows everything, doesn't he? Does Jesus know everything? Did he know everything when he was on the cross? Of course he did. He's going to rise from the dead in three days. He's going to appear, one of the people that he's going to appear to is James. It tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. James is his brother. James gets so on fire for the Lord that he becomes the leader in the church in Jerusalem. He's the guy who writes in Acts chapter 15 who settles this dispute. So if he knows his brother is going to come to the Lord in a matter of days and come to the Lord very strongly, what's he doing committing his mother Mary to the care of John, someone who's not his brother. You see what I mean? So maybe it's not baseless. Maybe I've got you thoroughly confused here. But if you read Mary and she says, how can this be because I'm a virgin? This is a very strange thing to say, knowing that she's betrothed, unless something's different about her life that we don't normally think about. And that's where some of the, this, this uh, you know, dare I say the word, Catholic view has come from. But it's not without base. If you understand the people of the time were different than the people who we deal with here. Now, please don't say this outside of this class, because if, if, this, if this gets back to the Baptist church here, I'm going to be in trouble. They'll never let me teach again. So I just want to put this as an academic thing. Academics, we, we, we can have mind discussions, right? This is an academic discussion. But Mary was very unusual and deeply, deeply committed because people within these particular sects were, sects were deeply committed people, as was, uh, as was Joseph, as we're going to see next time. And let me leave you with this. The Bible praises virginity, absolutely praises virginity. And here it speaks of Mary and her virginity. If you look over in, in, uh, in Acts, Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 21. So Acts chapter 21. It's speaking of Philip the Evangelist. Remember Philip the Evangelist who, who uh, had, had uh, prayed for that Ethiopian eunuch and, and he received the Lord? Well, he finally retires you know, and stops wandering around, and he retires. And uh, uh, if you look in Acts chapter 21, on verse, verse 8, and on the next day, we came to Caesarea. So this is where Philip the Evangelist finally retires. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. I mean, what is the Bible doing calling out? So they were prophetesses. 
What's it doing calling out their virginity? Because the Bible speaks highly of virginity. It is a good thing, and I know our world speaks non-highly of it. Both for men and for women, it is a good thing. And I'm not heaping condemnation on anyone. I am trying to support those who are virgins. And so just because I don't want to condemn anybody, I don't want to not support somebody just because somebody might get their feelings hurt that, oh, I'm not a virgin anymore. All right? Get over it. All right? Start walking with God from this day. But for those of you who are virgins, that is something to take hold of and to rejoice in. To absolutely rejoice in. It is a good thing. It is a good thing. This is a good thing for men and for women. The Bible praises this. Speaks highly of it. This godly man, his four daughters were prophetesses, though they were active in the church. But by the way, they were also virgins. It is something that we highly praise. It is a good thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and all that you have given us and done for us. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to learn from your word and to see and to grow and to understand. Father, I commit this to you. And I commit these young people to you. And Father, I pray that for those here who are virgins, that they would maintain their virginity until they marry. And Father, for those that are not, that from this day they would commit that to you. And they would walk as virgins before you until they marry. Father, the grace of God be upon them, I pray. Father, work in their lives. Thank you, Lord, that you call this thing out, that you speak highly of virginity. That when you speak of fine people, you speak of their virginity as well. Father, thank you for what you speak of. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. In the name of Jesus. Amen.